Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. The results from Canada's census are in. And for the first time ever, we have real data on something that we've never counted before. The number of transgender or non-binary people in the country. Canada is actually the first country to collect this kind of data. There were two questions on the census about this. The first asked about sex assigned at birth and had the options of male and female. And the second asked about a person's gender with the options of male, female, or other, with space for a handwritten answer. The census revealed that 0.33% of the population identifies as transgender or non-binary. That works out to about one in 300 people. How do we explain the rise in number of people identifying as trans if it's the first year that we're collecting that data? Is it because of immigration, for example? You know, is there another reason leading to those numbers? Or is it because genuinely they were always there, but this category wasn't available for them to check off? Dr. L. Chenier is a professor of history at Simon Fraser University and studies sexuality and gender. They're also the founder of the online community, Boldly Non-Binary. They're on the show today to help us understand why this is such a big deal and why it's important that we record this kind of information. This is The Decibel. Elle, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. So why is it important to include a count specifically of transgender and non-binary people in the census? So the first thing we have to ask is, why do we collect a census? What, what is the purpose of a census anyways? So uh, historically, the census has been a way for governments uh, to manage its populations. Um, so they have both positive uses, neutral uses, as well as you could say negative uses. So on the one hand, we might want to count diversity, whether that's gender diversity, uh, ethnic, racial diversity. Uh, We might want to count it uh, so that we can provide appropriate services to those communities to make sure that their needs are being met. So information and data itself is never benign. It never speaks for itself. So we always have to ask ourselves, you know, what is the purpose of collecting this data and how can it be used? So turning to this data that we now have today uh, on gender diversity in Canada, for example, uh, you could ring the alarm and say, look, this uh, phenomenon, this trend, as some people might want to call it, is growing and we need to address it and we need to put a stop to this. You know, we need to clamp down and make sure our young people are not being, you know, taken off the path of normativity and and led astray. Um, Or you could use it quite the opposite way and say, wow, one in 300 people identify as either non-binary or trans. Clearly, our organization needs to be meeting the needs of this population. What kind of programming changes do we need to make to make sure we're being inclusive? So let's talk specifically then about the results uh, from this census. So the data from StatsCan shows that 0.33% of Canadians age 15 and over identified as transgender or, or non-binary. What do you think of that figure? Is it is it more or less kind of where you would have thought it would land? So my first thought is, you know, when you when you look at a number like that, I think most people think, well, that's pretty insignificant. But uh, when you put it in terms of one in 300, 
and you think of a movie theater, you know, that's, it's not insignificant. That's, a, that's actually quite a lot of people. So again, it's how you, <laughs> how you read these numbers. Um, I think we should celebrate the fact that we even know it, um, that we have this uh, data. And I think it's really meaningful and very, very powerful uh, on so many different levels. I mean, not only is it affirming, um, this provides a really important tool for advocates to argue for greater provision of services to meet the needs, which are unique to these different kinds of groups. It will inform all kinds of discussions and debates around things like, you know, gender neutral bathrooms, training for, you know, school psychologists. Um, the, the list is endless, right? Healthcare services and so on. Let's just talk about some of the, the terms that we hear. So this is the first time the census in Canada has asked about gender as well as sex. Can you remind us, what is the difference between gender and sex? So typically one might say sex is uh, read on the biological body, whereas gender is socially constructed. But, you know, the scientific literature on this has shown that there are not two sexes and there's not even two sexes and intersex people. Uh, science has shown it's far more diverse and far more complex. And I think even more importantly, or equally important, is the fact that we now know that diversity in all aspects of biological life actually contributes to survival. Diversity is actually a good thing. And yet in our culture, we often treat it as a dangerous or destabilizing thing. Hmm. And then the, the other terms that we're using here, we're talking about transgender, non-binary, intersex as well. Can you explain those ones for us so we have a sense of, of what we're talking about then? Right. So intersex really speaks to the body, right? So if you are born neither male nor female, but in fact, your body contains multitudes, you know, this beautiful symphony, um, then you are intersex. And how you define your own gender is your own process. But, you know, your parents may have chosen to raise you as male or female, and that gender might feel right to you, and you may always identify with that gender. So that person would not necessarily identify as trans or non-binary. Whereas a, a, a transgender person is someone who transitions, we can say, out of the gender they were assigned uh, at birth. So we are connecting, when we make those assignments, we're connecting sex and gender. So that's why people often don't see a difference because, well, what is the difference, right? Like yeah. you have a vagina, you have a penis, that makes you a male, that makes you female. If you're intersex, oh no, we have a crisis. Mm -hmm. So transgender people are people who do not identify with their assigned sex. But one of the subtleties um, that I really love about the way some people talk about uh, being trans is that being transgender is not about becoming uh, a fixed sex, like, for example, a person assigned male becoming female, but rather the experience of being transgender is the experience of transitioning through gender. Mm. So there's no fixed final destination. A process in some way then. A, a process, but also an experience, right? Mm. <laughs> an experience and maybe even, you know, a project, an art project, right? Um, which is kind of the way I see, I, I, uh, I myself relate to gender. So I am non-binary, which means that uh, neither male nor female has ever resonated uh, for me. 
you know, I've studied uh, lesbian, gay, queer history for years. And this is the experience of queer people, too, is, you know, you always think you're the only one Mm -hmm. because you're surrounded by just heterosexuality and you're not aware of queer life. And so you think you're the only one. And and you just kind of adapt right to that. And I would say that was my experience, uh, not around being queer, because by the time I came out in 1990, there was lots of representations. I knew I wasn't the only one. But certainly around my gender, like I just thought, well, I'm just weird that way and whatever, right? It's one of the many ways I'm a little weird. And we all have a little weirdness in us. Um, and then when the language came around uh, for it, this term non-binary, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> uh, I rolled my eyes a little bit. I'm like, oh, what are the young really? people up to today? Oh, yeah. It was like, oh, here we go. We're inventing new terms. It's like, oh, it's exhaustive. You know, it's like, oh, cisgender. Now we have to call ourselves cisgender. So it was funny. Like my initial reaction was a bit of an eye roll. Um, and how did that change, though? Like, when did that change? So I'm a professor and I really uh, believe that uh, by standing up as a queer person, Uh, it's really important that I be a role model in my classroom. And so I was having more and more non-binary students in my classes. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I should just come out as adopt this as my own. Because I felt, you know, the lesbian community was a comfortable place for me. You know, I didn't feel limited. I didn't feel I needed a new category to liberate me because I didn't feel oppressed in any kind of way. And then I literally woke up one morning and there was a part of my mind that went, that's who you are. It's just who you are. And I was like, oh, okay. And so it just kind of happened organically. So if you imagine I am a queer scholar, I have been living, you know, in the center of like queerness for 30 years. And even for me, there was a bit of a, a process, right? Of, well, actually I said to my students, I think I was 52 at the time. I said, ah, I'm 52. I'm too old to come out again. (laughs) And, uh, And then I kind of, that's when I got thinking about it, right? So even me, a person extremely privileged, you know, and, and I mean, I'm in the best position to do that because I'm already queer. My whole, my whole professional career is queer. So it gives you an idea of like, really, uh, just how much of, uh, uh, emotional, personal effort and work there is, never mind coming to terms with it for yourself. Mm -hmm. So when we, if I can link this back to the data, Please. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I really noticed is that you see, you know, I think it's like the 18 to 35 age group, like the younger folks, there's where you have the biggest numbers. And then as people get older, the numbers get smaller and smaller. And so why is that? Right. So again, going back to this question of how do we read data? So some people would say, well, clearly that's evidence. This is a trend amongst young people. They're being led astray. Uh, It's not important. Uh, We should dismiss this. It'll pass like every other trend passes. So that's one way to read it. But the other way to read it is that if you look at just if we use my own experience as an example, you know, when you're older, going through those changes, uh, maybe it's a little bit more laborious than when you're young. It's exciting. You're exploring, you know, you're figuring out who you are when you're young. So it's it's easier in a sense. So to me, that's how I would interpret the age differences in who's identifying um, yeah. because it, this is the moment um, for them to to explore that and really ask themselves who they are and the older you get to some degree you're more settled it's harder to unsettle what you've already established for yourself and adopt a new identity so it doesn't mean that that doesn't resonate for them uh, it doesn't mean that 
had this language and these categories been available when they were younger, they would not have adopted them. It doesn't mean that at all. It has everything to do with history and change over time. I want to bring it back to the the actual question on the census, Al. If we can talk about this. On the, the questionnaire, there were three options for how Canadians could answer that question. So you could say male, female, or other. That was the third option there, where people could write in their own answer. I wonder what you think about the use of that term other, though, because that can be kind of a loaded term. Oh, yeah, I think it's terrible. I, I know that they uh, consulted widely. Uh, but I wonder, first of all, with whom, but uh, I also, though, wonder who ultimately made that decision, because just because they consulted doesn't mean they necessarily went with the recommendations, because I really can't imagine a scholar in queer studies um, advocating for this option. And to simply leave other and not name trans, not name non-binary, it's a very, very curious uh, choice they made. So when I was looking at it, you know, I've thought a lot about the use of ethnicity and cultural origin, which is a category that has always existed in the Canadian census, always been controversial. So in Canada, we don't identify racial origin we identify ethnicity and cultural background in the census. And we've been doing that since uh, before 1871. So 1871 was the first census when Canada became the nation that we know it today. And as that evolved, what they did was they felt that uh, creating terms for you to select from was too limiting. And it was better for data uh, collection to allow people to self-identify, but give examples. So my only thought about what was their process in coming up with this term other was that perhaps they were informed by that other iteration around ethnic and cultural identity Mm -hmm. to know that to allow people to self-identify actually produced better data. But what we've seen from the trans and non-binary community is people saying, hey, why didn't you give me a box to check? You know, um, there's a real benefit to that, uh, not only for me to be named, but for other people to actually see that name. And other is kind of ambiguous. And, you know, uh, unless we specify things, they can be read in multiple kind of ways. So it it can be denigrating in some way. Mm -hmm. So I see the criticism. I agree with it. But I'm open to hearing why it is they made that choice, because these are very thoughtful processes. You know, these the census is not put together in a slapdash kind of way. There's a lot of thought that goes into it. What do we lose when we don't count, though, when we don't have these kind of numeric records, I guess, um, to, to, to look at or to fall back on and to understand when we look at history? Well, the way I would put it is numbers are one form of visibility. So when we're not visible, right, what does that mean? And so it means that we're not seen and we feel invisible. We feel our experience doesn't matter. Um, We feel we can we can feel alone and isolated. Um, We can feel shame. Um, But the more visible we are, um, the less likely we are to feel that way because we have the opportunity to make connection with other people and to feel affirmed in our difference, right? So when you're part of the mainstream, that's not your experience because you're represented everywhere. Culture represents you 
uh, in every possible form. We don't need people to identify that they are cisgender, right, in the census. But we could include that. I mean, I think that would be ideal in the future to have cisgender, transgender, because it puts them on equal footing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I was thinking, it's a little bit of a side story, but I was watching um, uh, a show on Netflix the other day. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Let me pause and ask you. It's... Yeah. Um, it's an American family. It goes back and forth in time. They're white and one child is uh, black and he's adopted. Mm. Do, you, do you know the show? I don't know. I'll see if Damn any it. of our producers who are also listening in know. Damn. Um. It's, it's, it's a good show. <laughs> it's a good show. Oftentimes when children like, come out to their parents, like teenagers and so on, even as gay or lesbian, you know, the response is, I accept you no matter who you are. But imagine saying that to a child a heterosexual child who's starting to date someone, you know, mom, this boy at school, he's so cute. He asked me on a date. I accept you no matter who you are, (laughs) you know, like that's what I, that's what I mean. Right. There's a profound difference there. Right. Just saying, I accept you no matter who you are. Sounds on the surface uh, like, Oh, that's beautiful. What a loving parent. And I'm sure they are a very loving parent, but it affirms that, Oh, you're different. And I accept you despite your difference. That's a good point. So if we put cisgender and transgender together and you have to identify as one or the other, then we put them on equal footing. And it's not about numbers. It's it's just about identifying who you are. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Uh, is the show called This Is Us? Is that the show? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a scene. It's a scene. But, you know, it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. so many parents, that's just the response, right? Hmm. As a historian of LGBTQ communities in Canada, how have the histories of these communities been recorded, I guess, in the absence of formal data like the census? Uh, Lots of different ways. You know, the archival record is always historians' first stop. And traditionally, when do queer people show up in the archives, right? Often through criminal trials. Um, but also, you know, there's lots of private personal papers. So some people may not know this, but, uh, the first female mayor in Canada was mayor of Ottawa and she uh, was a lesbian and she donated her private papers to the National Archives of Canada with the provision that they not be opened until the year 2000. Uh, so we do have access to personal papers of that nature. Um, what was her, what was her name? I don't, I don't know. Charlotte Witten. Hmm. Yeah. Very important uh, and controversial figure because she was uh, kind of like a mini Margaret Thatcher in Canada, (laughs) clawing back welfare for single mothers. Um, Yeah, so we always uh, go to the archives first. My own expertise is in oral history. So talking to people, interviewing them about their life experience. So that's how we uh, collect stories. And for the kind of, for most historians, um, numbers actually don't, well, so I'm going to upset some historians by saying this. It's not about counting, right? What is historically significant is not based solely on numbers. So I would say the experience of, you know, certain groups of people, their relevance to our history is not based on uh, them having a majority or a significant minority. I would argue everybody's experience matters and has value. And we have something to learn as humans from literally everybody's experience. So numbers are important, but they only play one role in understanding the past and I would say even the present. Elle, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, you're most welcome. It's been a real pleasure. 
That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our intern is Emily McPhail. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.